but he's hot. He he looks like he looks he like Zachary hot. Quinto. Um, he does. Oh my god, he does look like Zachary. I Quinto. thought it was Zachary Quinto when I first saw him in the movie, and I was like, "Wait, Zachary Quinto's in this?" And then, then it also, was like, "Oh no, you it's be Eli kind Roth. of psyched if ja- if Zachary Quinto was killing people with a baseball bat." Fantastic. Well, welcome back, everybody, to our second episode of Block Busted. Very exciting. I'm glad we made it out of that uh, that isolated episode, Purgatory. Um, I'm your host, Lily Asuda. I'm Michael Wolf. And this is Block Busted, a podcast about the movies we love and how they shape the world as we know it. Um, today, we are venturing into Tarantino land, which seemed inevitable, um, but we decided to shake it up. We're going to be kicking it off with Inglorious Bastards. So we're a little bit hipster, a little bit off the uh, the obvious Tarantino path. And uh, yeah, we're super excited, and I think we're just going to hop right into it. So um, uh, yeah, Michael and I, it's been great. It sounds like we've found a pretty much bottomless list of films we would be interested in, but it seemed like a uh, yeah, kind of a kind of a must-have for the film canon that we would have to talk about Tarantino at some point, and uh, so yeah, we decided a good a good way to start off episode two. Um, so uh, yeah, I get Michael. How do we want to start this? Do we want to talk about our feelings about the film? Do a little summary. I think I think our feel in? our feelings is good, and then we'll do a quick okay. summary. Okay, great. Yeah, feelings are pivotal. So, Michael, tell me about your feelings about this film. Um, I know you were very late to the Tarantino party in general. Um, so, d- when did you see this movie for um, the first time? Yeah, so I just saw this movie for the first time a couple of weeks ago. Uh, sure. That Yeah, that wasn't for, like, lack of trying. I had heard great things about this movie uh, years ago and actually tried to watch it. And, but because of my previous exposure to like Holocaust cinema, which is part of why Tarantino made this movie, I actually didn't watch it because as a Jewish person, I can only handle so much like Jews are being persecuted on screen. So totally. (laughs) Yeah. So I really, uh, I really like, it took a while to get to it. Um, I maybe a different version of me. Uh, without my politics, would have liked this movie more because I, I really wanted to like it. I was really intrigued by the the idea of like a Jewish revenge story, uh, coming at like coming at the notion of like always portraying Jews as like a victim uh, in totally. Holocaust cinema. Uh, and you know, I think Tarantino writes like really fun scenes and has great characters and has some great sequences and. That's all true in this, um, so I guess you could call this good, uh, but I just didn't like it, mostly because, like, my politics do not align with this movie at all. <laughs> totally, totally. Uh, yeah, and I, I, I wanted to. Um, I also think the question of whether or not it's good is debatable, because I, yeah. A, I was really struck on the um, second watch, like, how it's not really about anything, uh, and... Very beautiful, though. A lot of great shots. Very beautiful. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and B, uh, it's about 45 minutes too long, I would say. I would say most Tarantino movies are. Um, we, this is a man who loves his acts. We love a a five-act film, a six-act film, or excuse me, not acts, chapters. 
not acts, but chapters. I stand corrected. Um, but still, yeah, I'm like, maybe maybe three chapters would be good. Or or no chapters, and we could just, uh, you know, not need those those place markers. So I'm with you coming in at, I believe, just over two and a half hours. It is, uh, it's a long-ass watch, for sure. What'd you think of uh, it? Um, you know, I, th- well, actually, this might have been the first Tarantino movie. I ever saw like a like right when it came out back in 2009 um I did not see Pulp Fiction until very late um eh. and uh yeah I I enjoy this movie I think Tarantino makes movies that are hard to not have a good time watching if that makes sense right they're very beautiful um he's a wonderful writer um he is for better or for worse a real kind of uh film kid filmmaker Right, he's a he's a big movie buff. He likes to make movies about movies that incorporate a meta component. We see that in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, as well as a little bit here in Inglorious Bastards. Um, so, I I'm with you. I think it's a little bit long, but I I enjoyed the watching process. I think that what I was the most struck by, and hopefully what we'll be able to unpack over these subsequent forty five or fifty minutes, is I think this is a movie that got a lot of praise for being quote very subversive or. Um, you know, like really redefining, you know, period pieces or Holocaust films or whatever. And at the end of the day, I think even if you love this movie, um, that, you know, you, you enjoyed the ride. Uh, I don't know that this is a movie that's really about anything much more complicated than good versus evil in pretty much the broadest, most black and white strokes you could offer, which I would say is, uh, pretty... Um, standard for the Tarantino canon, right? It's good guys and bad guys. Everybody has a machine gun plot twist. Usually pretty much everyone dies. Um, And yeah, so I think to me what is interesting both about this film and Tarantino movies in general are they feel like very simplistic ideas that become sort of legendary because of the quote craftsmanship at a aesthetic and design level which is certainly a skill and is very cool, but is to me separate from a movie that has any sort of complex or dare I say significant meaning. Um, and I, they ultimately spoilers, everybody, the gist of this movie is basically Nazis are bad, which like, I agree. Um, but I don't know is like a really hot take for uh, a writer director to be offering. Um, and we'll get into a little bit more, I think in a minute into arenas in which that is problematic or, uh, I, I think overly simplistic. Maybe this episode is just called overly simplistic. The episode. Um, I feel like that's where both you and I uh, really sort of come in for this. Well, for and film. it's it's interesting that you say that too, because ironically, I think the most complex characters in the movie are the Nazis. Right. Oh, totally. Like Christoph Waltz's character seems by far to be certainly the most interesting character. Um, yeah. So, and we, you know, I think it is worth noting, I assume our listeners are probably, you know, either uh, some degree of film aficionado, as we say. Um, But, you know, this is a movie that got a ton of Oscar buzz that did really well on the awards circuit. Uh, Christoph Waltz won uh, Best, I want to say, Supporting Actor. They came in with like seven other nominations, including Picture, Director, and Original Screenplay. Um, So this is a movie that had a lot of critical hype. Um, And I think that's, you know, again, whatever meaning you ascribe to that, but I think is worth noting at least to say that within the industry, this was a very well-received film um, that got a lot of critical acclaim, so. Yeah, do you want to um, give like a little bit of a background on Tarantino in this movie and then go into a recap? Oh, shit. Well, I feel like you're going to be more in the know about like the Tarantino factoids, but um, <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's 
fucking Quentin Tarantino. It's a film by Quentin Tarantino, as we will never forget. Um, this is his, ooh, fifth movie? Now I don't know. I'll have to go. I, I can't do the backwards math. I know Hateful Eight was his eighth movie. And then, but yeah, I don't know. And theoretically, he wants to make only 10 movies. Um, I feel like if you know anything about Tarantino, it's his, again, obsession with the film canon, that he is a sort of anti-establishment, right, in the sense like he dropped out of high school, is not a film school graduate. I'm not in any way, let me be clear, Michael and I are never implying that uh, film school is a must-have. I think we can both agree it's it's not at all. Um, but uh, that he was sort of a self-taught auteur um, and yeah, has a, you know, he always, he wants to shoot on film. He has, he's very specific about the screening protocols for his films. Um, he's a big advocate of, uh, you know, theaters, physical theaters, which we see exemplified in Inglorious Bastards. Uh, I think it makes sense that most filmmakers are not a big fan of the streaming space. Um, and yeah, he is, uh, 25%. Is he Cherokee? Question mark. Yeah, he's 20, he 25%, 25% Cherokee. Um, on yeah, his any mom's other, side. On his, uh, great, on his mom's side. Uh, um, we've got a family tree in there. Anything else? Yeah, so this movie, uh, it was directed by Tarantino. He wrote it over the course of like 10-ish years. Uh, it came out in 2009. Um, it was distributed by the Weinstein Company, uh, Harvey Weinstein. Fun a, fact that has not aged well. Not not aged well. Tarantino, uh, Har Harvey Weinstein and Tarantino worked closely together for a long time. Uh, Tarantino knew a lot about what Weinstein did and kind of minimized it for a long time. Um, other people who were involved in this movie um, was uh, the 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 main producer of it was Lawrence Bender, who is like a classic Hollywood uh, liberal, also someone who knew a lot about Weinstein. Um, and did nothing about it. Um, Bender is Jewish. Uh, he is, he is also like pretty active, like a pretty active donor to the Democratic Party, and serves on a couple of different organizations um, surrounding like pro-Israel, United States relations. Um, and then the other person that is important to note, probably on the crew who was involved with this, is uh, our good friend Eli Roth. Yeah, Jewish horror director of Hostel, Eli Roth. Um, yeah, he was who the is weirdly hot. I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but is weirdly hot. Like, it always blows my mind. You're like, what a weird man. Um, although completely tracks for me that he's friends with Tarantino, but. You're like, man, gruesome films, very beautiful face. So not relevant to our listeners, but just going to casually note that if you, you know, if you want to Google him, I'd recommend that. Yeah. And he, uh, he was the Jew, he was, he and Bender were the Jewish sounding boards for this movie. Um, totally. So do you want to, um, do you want to give us a quick little recap of like oh, what shit. this was? Yeah. I'm going to give you a quick little recap of this two and a half hour movie. Um, Honestly, so not a lot happens, so it should be real <laughs> well, quick. <laughs> there's a lot of great sort of sequences, which is why, um, you know, we're not going to be doing kind of a beat-by-beat beat summary. Um, but in broad strokes, simple story here um, is it's... Ooh, do we know what year it is set in? 43? Um, 42? It, it's set during the time when the Nazis occupied France. Right. Okay, right. So we're in Nazi-occupied France, and really our A-plot follows uh, 
Lieutenant Aldo Rain, played by Brad Pitt, who is a part is the leader of a group of uh, sort of uh, Jewish American uh, vigilantes who uh, are out to scalp Nazis in the largest numbers possible, and uh, their plan to uh, overthrow, well, I guess not overthrow, to end the war, to end the war against uh, Hitler by taking down Hitler and a group of his key men at this uh, film screening of, and this is a fictional film, correct? The film that's being screened uh, of Nations, say, yeah, Nations, Nations Pride. Pride which feels like uh, sort of a vague spinoff on, like, Birth of a Nation, but this uh, Nazi propaganda film uh, glorifying uh, this one young soldier uh, who killed a whole bunch of uh, American troops. And uh, so there's going to be this big premiere. Hitler's going to be there, um, all of his key men. And so the bastards are planning this sort of mass assassination um, and in classic Tarantino style, we've got a big old ensemble cast, a lot of intersecting narratives. Um, we've also got uh, our beloved Christoph Waltz. Uh, his character is Hans Landa, epic character, um, who's kind of like a right-hand man to Hitler. Um, He's in the charge Jew of... hunter. He's the Jew hunter. Right, yeah, this is Tarantino. We, we don't need a lot of new... He's the Jew hunter. Um, <laughs> and he does exactly what his name would imply. Um, and the opening sequence uh, sort of sets up I guess like some kind of our B plot rivalry uh, of uh, Londa uh, murdering uh, this group, uh, this Jewish family in hiding, and he lets one of the daughters get away. Um, daughter named Shoshana, who ends up uh, escaping and being able to reinvent her life in France uh, as, as a cinema a owner. Cinema as a cinema played owner, played by uh, Melanie Laurent. Yes. Uh, and lo and behold, uh, through a series of unfortunate events, um, they the Nazis end up deciding to host the premiere of this propaganda film at her cinema. And so unbeknownst to both uh, the Nazis and the bastards, um, she and her uh, boyfriend, who is black, um, decide to uh, bl literally blow up the theater with the Nazis. And so in the end, spoiler alert, um, there's sort of two plots to kill the Nazis that fire off quite literally simultaneously. And we kill Hitler, the Nazis are destroyed. And um, how with sort of with the help of uh, Colonel Londa, who ends up being uh, kind of a, a double agent and tries to strike a deal with the bastards, essentially that he will cash in Hitler and all of his men. He will let this assassination take place if the Americans grant him immunity for all of his war crimes. And so in the end, we see that, uh, you know, they walk over the border accompanied by uh, Brad Pitt and uh, uh, it's BJ Novak, right? From the office. Yeah, he's Brad one of the Pitt's bastards. Right -hand man, which yeah. is so funny. Um, he's the little man. He's the little man. Um, and genuinely some great, like, comedic moments, shockingly from B.J. Novak. Like, he's not, like, a pivotal character, but he has, like, a quietly funny presence throughout. Um, anyway, but there's this handoff between Christoph Waltz and Brad Pitt, and they, uh, Brad Pitt has this whole monologue about how, like, oh, well, you know, once you take off your Nazi uniform, people aren't going to know what you did anymore. You know, maybe we granted you immunity, but I'm going to give you something you can't take off. And he cuts a swastika in Christoph Waltz's forehead um, so that everyone will know he is a Nazi. And uh, the final line of the film, I may be butchering it, but is Brad Pitt looking at B.J. Novak saying, I believe this might be my greatest masterpiece yet. And then we smash to a film by Quentin Tarantino. So I uh, don't need to dig super deep to think, well, whose masterpiece is this really? 
Um, anyway, so that's, in a nutshell, there we have a variety of other fun and crazy B characters, but essentially it is a, an assassination attempt of Hitler, and uh, they succeed. Uh, uh, yeah, it's a it's a revisionist history take, um, uh, right? Like none of it is true. Um, that's the point. You're right. You, we're we're supposed to be, we're 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 supposed to be commenting on the past through this revisionist history take. Totally. There's a whole can, stacked cast of like people. Like um, Diane Kruger is in it as like a German actress who is actually a spy for the for the Allies. Right. Uh, you've got. Michael Fassbender playing like a British film critic. Also, oh shit, uh, I forgot about him. Also, like Michael Fassbender, piece of shit, like known for like being a pretty like abusive person. Oh really? Yeah. What did Michael Fassbender do? I didn't know about this. He like abused his significant other. Um, oh cool. Yeah, he's he's Makes not sense. cool. Um, you got and then you got of course Eli Roth who doesn't really act but uh, <laughs> is playing the bear Jew. In the movie, Who so he kills people with a baseball bat. Yeah, makes sense. It's really gruesome. Um, but he's hot. He he looks like he looks he like Zachary Quinto. Um, he does. Oh my god, he does look like Zachary. I Quinto. thought it was Zachary Quinto when I first saw him in the movie, and I was like, "Wait, Zachary Quinto's in this?" And then it was like, "Oh no, it's Eli." Also, would be kind Ross. of psyched if ja- if Zachary Quinto was killing people with a baseball bat? Like, I would kind of love that for him, you know? Yeah. Like, feels outside of the Zachary Quinto canon. Um, I want to talk just briefly, um, I know, Michael, you're going to be able to talk more about kind of the uh, narrative around Holocaust cinema and, you know, uh, kind of misconceptions around uh, what that story looks like for Jewish Americans, etc. So I want us to get to that in a minute, but I just want us to touch on kind of the revisionist history component of this film, because this is a major theme in Tarantino's more recent work. Um, Django totally. Unchained is a story about uh, a slave who gets revenge on, you know, the, the master who wronged he and his wife. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is, you know, a sort of big what if uh, of what if the Mansons had not killed Sharon Tate? What if someone had killed the Mansons first? Um, and Glorious Bastards, of course, being what if we'd killed Hitler? Um, so this is a sort of theme, an idea that seems to very much interest him. Um, and it's something that seems to have been widely praised both at the time in retrospect. And uh, there's a very brief quote that I think will get us into kind of this next section of commentary. Um, but from a BBC culture review from 2019, um, from a writer named Karen Jones. Um, so this was right after Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out. And uh, the writer says, quote, uh, he, Tarantino, knows that movies can't change the past, but they can alter how we see it. Tarantino is throwing a new light on the present by depicting more just societies that might have been. Um, and goes on to talk about, quote, how revisionist histories recast the victims as heroes. Um, and Michael, I want to hear your thoughts on this in a second, but to me, what I find problematic or just like weird about this idea and not I, I guess I don't want to harp too much on like Tarantino is a straight white man so he can't talk about anything important I'm like I think straight white men should also feel compelled to tell stories about things that are important or to examine the past or to have an interest in issues that might not directly oversect with uh you know their own personal lived experiences but I'm like I believe you can do that in a way that's you know well informed or you know well intended or what have you 
Um, but I think this idea that like revisionist history is somehow necessary or critical or um, I don't know, like offers us some sort of meaningful insight, especially when what that history is saying, if anything, oversimplifies the past, right? It supposes this world where like, oh, well, if we'd killed Hitler, then everything would have been fine. Like, well, the Holocaust wouldn't have happened if we just killed Hitler multiple years into the war after the Holocaust was already happening. Or like, oh, if this one slave got revenge on his master, this is indicative of how we could have collapsed the system of slavery. Um, and I don't mean to be that guy who's raining on like, you know, well, fuck you, Lily. Like this movie's just supposed to be fun. So whatever, it's more, but I'm like, I think it's this kind of pervasive oversimplification of the past when we, and I mean as an industry, not just Tarantino, um, but make movies about sort of historical events and then have these very one-dimensional takeaways of like, oh, well, it was really about this isolated incident. And if we just stopped that, then we could have prevented all of this suffering. And I find that to be um, absurd and extremely problematic. And Michael, I think you'll get us more down the path of kind of why that is. Yeah, well, it's funny that we're talking about, like, Tarantino's revisionist history when, with, with the assumption being right that we don't, that our history of the Holocaust <laughs> and what we understand right. isn't totally. already revisionist. Totally. Um, yeah. So my, my, I'm Jewish. Um, spoiler. Hot take. Hot take. <laughs> spoiler alert, Michael is Jewish. Yeah, uh. So I, uh, I have a lot of thoughts and feelings on this and I want to, um, I just want to start off by like acknowledging like that the take that I have is not the take of most Jews, most American Jews in particular. Um, and I think that's important because a lot of Tarantino's understanding of the Holocaust and a lot of everyone's understanding of the Holocaust come and including like the Holocaust cinema that Tarantino is critiquing comes from American Jews. Totally. So that is something to keep in mind. So basically like the whole point of this, the whole like inception that of this movie for Tarantino was um, that Hollywood has this like history of depicting Jews as victims and Nazis as some separate inhuman evil uh, and that Holocaust cinema in particular, which is usually directed uh, by Jewish American directors, um, tends to uh, capitalize upon this fact. I would go a step further and say that pretty much all Holocaust discourse is like overly dominated by... Uh, by this idea of Jewish victimhood. And it's not to say that like six million Jews didn't die in the Holocaust, uh, that did happen, but that is like such, uh, it's such an oversimplification of what actually happened. And so there's a really good, uh, writer who is pretty controversial in a lot of Jewish spaces. Um, but I think is worth taking a look. His name's Norm Finkelstein. Uh, he wrote a book called the Holocaust industry and in it, uh, Norm is, uh, Norm is the child of, uh, two Holocaust survivors. His parents fought in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Wow. Um, they are, yeah, they are really, really, they were really powerful people. Um, and they basically raised Norm under the idea that, 
what happened in Nazi Germany was bad, and we should be against all oppression everywhere. And Makes sense. Makes sense. And in his book, he basically talks about the idea of how, how we came to talk about this narrative of the Holocaust in this way. And he, he touches upon a couple of things. So for starters, like, U.S. history of the Holocaust is wrong in that, like, we, A, didn't get into World War II with some glorious mission to help, uh, like, sure. free Jewish people from Nazi oppression. Sure. We got into World War II uh, because of, um, because the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, uh, but if you're only watching American Hollywood movies like Indiana Jones or Captain America, that's not the takeaway you're going to have, right? <laughs> right. Um, and then the second is the idea that, um, the second is like, uh, uh, FDR was not a very good president, right? Like he actually turned away, uh, Jewish refugees who were fleeing the camps. Um, he wouldn't let them in, partially because he was super bigoted, partially because uh, there were anti-immigration laws on the books. Um, and it's important to note here, because this is going to be a theme throughout this conversation, that like the reason anti-immigration laws exist is because politicians like to weaponize this fear of other to distract from like the real problems plaguing our society, namely like capitalism, poverty, and all the stuff that comes with that. Sure. I mean, and if we were to talk about this time in particular, right, we could say FDR is also the president who signed an executive order to send hundreds of thousands of Japanese Americans to, uh, you know, uh, internment camps during this time a topic that we certainly don't make dozens of films about, and I bring this up not to turn this into, like, a competition of suffering or to say, well, if you talk about X, you have to talk about Y. But I think that what Michael's leaning into of this, like, overly simplistic narrative about the Holocaust, we're like, oh, America was always on the right side. America, we were really there to fight for the Jews in the same way, I think, you could draw an apt parallel both through Hollywood and maybe just uh, broad cultural discourse in the United States now, right? That there's this sense of like, yeah, but we always knew slavery was bad, right? There were some crazy people who had slaves, but everybody else, like we all saw that slavery was bad and that's why we got rid of slavery and now it's gone versus the reality both then and arguably now, <laughs> um, that that was not some universally or perhaps even widely held belief of racial equality or, you know, uh, things like that. So, uh, yeah, I think that, and particularly, I think there's something interesting to me about when we look at more kind of, quote, family, or quote, um, I don't know, like, I don't want to say pop culture but thinking about films like Indiana Jones or Captain America, right? Captain America was literally created, I found this out very recently, was literally created as anti-Japanese propaganda for children. Um, and, you know, I recognize that is, a, to a certain extent, a separate entity from the Marvel franchise we know today. And there's certainly a different conversation to be had about the shortcomings of Marvel as a whole. Um, anyway, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I felt it was just relevant to tie all of those things together. No, you're absolutely right. Because the point is, is like, what story are we not telling when we tell this story? And that's what Norm makes the case for in his book, right? Like, one of the things he talks about is that, like, even after the Holocaust ended and the camps were liberated, people still did not take, um, people still did not take, like, the Holocaust seriously, um, right? Like, 
Uh, I think this is important, right? It was seen as a communist cause to like remember the Holocaust, and that's really important. Really? Yeah, and that's and that's really important to note because like the narrative is six million Jews died in the Holocaust, but eleven million people total died in the Holocaust. Uh, right. Five million of them weren't Jews; they were communists, they were disabled, they were the Roma, they were people of color, um, and uh, like. It wasn't until after the Six-Day War in Israel that uh, the United States um, could uh, basically claim Israel, like, basically completely sided with Israel and could claim, like, that Israel was a bulwark of democracy um, in the Middle East, that, uh, you know, we needed a place to, uh, we, needed, we needed them strategically for that. Uh, they became a mouthpiece right. for U.S. imperialism, that uh, we started to really let this narrative of Jewish victimhood take over. And this is super important because Israel is occupying Palestine. They've been occupying Palestine uh, for a long, long time now, since uh, arguably as far back as the early 1900s, but definitely since after World War II, when they were officially sure. made a country. And I don't, we don't need to get too much into the specifics of it, but that is a big justification like, anti-Semitism, and specifically the evils of the Holocaust, is a big justification to overlook everything that Israel has done. And it's particularly important because um, American Jews, like, have seized on this narrative. Um, like... Uh, and I think, and I think you could say even beyond. Uh, I am not Jewish, so I'll stay out of the uh, arguments for uh, the 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 widely held beliefs of American Jews. But I think we could argue kind of American uh, culture and our general historic understanding, broadly speaking. Right, if we're going back to this idea of not in any way to minimize the suffering, at, clearly the atrocities committed against Jewish people during the Holocaust but in recognizing that that was not solely against Jewish people, and that this was, in fact, a more um, insidious and strategically plotted endeavor to take down people, any sort of, quote, undesirable people around the fringes of society, and that that was not limited to Jews. So again, that's not saying, like, the Holocaust wasn't about the oppression of Jews. It certainly was, but to highlight that they were not the only group that was murdered you know, and taken down by the Nazis in that movement. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, and, and that really gets at, at, at the crux of it, right? Like, um, like, like, uh, we, when we talk about anti-Semitism, we think of it as like this evil hatred people hold in their hearts. When the reality is, is that like the first people who went into the camps, uh, were communists, right. uh, and that the whole point of, like, the anti-Semitism of, of Nazi Germany was to rally, like, a, and exploit the public of, of, the, of the Weimar Republic to, uh, to support the Nazi cause, basically. And right. really, like, if you were a lead member of the Nazi party, if you were in key industries that the Nazis uh, wanted to prop up and support, you got extremely, extremely rich. Like, totally. And we see this today with Republicans in the United States. We saw it back then during, uh, during slavery, right? Like, 
most most white people who fought for the Confederacy in the Civil War actually didn't even own slaves. They did it because they were convinced that it was uh, it was important. Like right, that they were somehow protecting their way of life, right, and that this is like a very carefully constructed political weapon, essentially, right, that is not limited to the United States. That we can see this across, you know, all different kinds of governments. But this idea that, like, you know, you need to you need to justify the atrocities you are propagating by creating some sort of myth around that. And the reality is that most people who defend that myth are not drooling at the mouth, you know, armed with a machete, but that it's a lot of passivity and misinformation and fear. And not, I mean, again, we don't need to get... I, uh, clearly there is a natural extension to how this leads into present day politics, but I think just across the board and that when we create and not just Tarantino, not just this movie, I don't ever want us to be putting all of this pressure on like the fact that Tarantino made this one movie is why this is a problem, but that these kinds of very simplistic historic narratives about good and bad and good and evil and this assumption that America was always on the right side, which we sort of know at a gut level is of course not true. Um, really creates this artificial sense of how we view our own past. Yeah, and um, to and to wrap it up, right, like, Norm Finkelstein very explicitly makes the case, right, like, after the Six-Day War, we started to tell the story of Jewish victimhood, and the United States now has, like, built up and now has over, like, 300 museums dedicated oh, yeah. to the Holocaust in the United yeah. States. Which is super weird if you think about it, because, like, imagine if Germany had over 300 museums dedicated to slavery or indigenous genocide, right? Like In America. In America. <laughs> if Germany America. had over 300 museums dedicated to commemorating the historic understanding of atrocities perp perpetrated not within their country, not that there's anything wrong with educating uh, folks about atrocities that have happened everywhere, but that does feel like a very sort of lopsided... Uh, allocation of resources especially because we don't actually have a bunch of museums about uh, about uh <laughs> like right. american the american right. enslavement of african people we don't sure. have like the only we, we have like one or two museums sure. that actually talk about indigenous people and the genocide specifically right like most people sure or don't the know. japanese internment or any of those things yeah like we like we killed we we literally killed ninety to ninety five percent of in, of the indigenous peoples right. in the United States. No, totally. That's like way like I don't want to like I don't want to say like compare oppressions, right? But like it's really weird that we are so focused on an external genocide of Jews in the totally. Holocaust and not the fact that we killed possibly as high as 95%, at a minimum 90% of all indigenous peoples in the United States. Totally. Totally. And, and so then you get into, like, what does this become in, in cinema, right? It becomes uh, this overly simplistic narrative of Jews as victims, right? And we see this through Steven Spielberg, not just through Indiana Jones, but through Schindler's List. We see this in other movies like The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, The Pianist, The Gray Zone, and even after Inglorious. Bastards came out, Taika Waititi directed Jojo Rabbit, right? These are all movies that feature Jews as the victims, that feature, uh, that, like, Jojo Rabbit is arguably a little bit more complex, but, like, feature sure. Nazis as some sort of separate inhuman evil. And that totally. is what and Tarantino anything, has set out to criticize. Absolutely, and I realize we're not here to talk about Jojo Rabbit, but I think that, to me, is an apt 
kind of comparison, and I maybe somewhere down the line we will do an episode on that, but I think that at least Jojo Rabbit... Ha First of all, I, I loved Jojo Rabbit, which I realize is maybe a slightly controversial opinion, but I really enjoyed it. Um, and I think that in that instance, the idea of portraying the Nazis in this very uh, cartoonish way is very intentional because it's viewed through the eyes of a nine-year-old boy, right? So the idea that this is his understanding of what he is consuming, that that is strategic, whereas Tarantino is essentially playing up, uh, again, a, a pretty absurdly... Uh, you know, gross, buffoonish version of, like, Hitler and, you know, all of his right-hand men, really just for laughs. Like, it's not that they're, like, the sort of wider nuance of, like, oh, we're utilizing this as a tool, you know, for a certain viewership. I don't know that you can make that point with Inglorious Bastards, where I think that Taika Waititi was taking a very specific angle, and I realize there's a separate sort of discourse around that, um, but I feel that's a a distinction worth making. Um, I'm glad that we've had, so I, I'm glad we had this time to talk a little bit of kind of historic background and, you know, how Hollywood narratives around the Holocaust and maybe widely speaking the oppression of uh, targeted groups of people uh, across the globe sort of fits into this uh, very uh, limited perspective. I'd like us to bring it back to Inglorious Bastards just a little bit. And one yes. of the things that we had talked about was, uh, this idea of revenge over reparations, which again, I think is very broadly visible um, across Hollywood in all kinds of genres with all kinds of filmmakers, but is also like really the bread and butter of Tarantino movies, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if we're familiar with some of his canon, right? Kill Bill, uh, all three of them is a story of, you know, a woman who is brutalized and who gets revenge on her rapist. Uh, Django is a story of a slave who gets revenge on his master, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so these kinds of uh, and, and not just gets revenge, but gets revenge in the bloodiest, goriest, most over-the-top way that you could get revenge. And that there is something, and I, I don't think this is just my opinion, I think it, for really any viewer, and that there is something sort of just terrifyingly fa uh, satisfying about that. That it's this idea of like, fuck yeah, I'm watching the bad guys go down. And that that feels good. And that Tarantino really frames this in a way that is almost always comedic. Um intentionally so that is uh super stylized um and that really plays up like the kind of giddy high of getting revenge and i'd like us to talk a little bit about how revenge tropes um yeah are are very problematic um yeah so i'll hand that off to you well and even before we get into that like if you want to tie back all of that history to inglorious bastards right i think it's important in that uh a, like, Tarantino's not Jewish. Um, he is not. <laughs> none of the... none of The characters that he depicts as Jews are basically Jews in name only. There's nothing Jewish about them. Different Jews have different opinions on how they want to be represented on screen, but it's pretty, like, like hard to d deny that, like, Brad Pitt is not Jewish. You, uh like Shoshana is Jewish in name only. No one says Hebrew or Yiddish in the film. No one's ever seen practicing Judaism. They are just like stand-ins for Tarantino's revenge story. And if anything, it's even more sinister with Brad Pitt because he is part of, the bastards are part of an American outfit sent over to liberate and like assass liberate the Jews, get revenge and assassinate Hitler. Right? So that's what's, what's playing into this whole thing. 
Um, and also, Tar uh, Tarantino has Brad Pitt's character be, um, like, a descendant of, um, of an indigenous person. Uh, so Brad Pitt is, like, basically doing red face and portraying a Jew, even though he's neither. Um, I would argue right. the red face is more sinister. But then... Right. But then this, this gets into this idea of, like, this, like, like these are the stand-ins for this weird, weird revenge thing that he has going on. And, right. like, I think um, a lot of Jews, when they watch this movie, like, have uh, either love it or they hate it. And the reason that they hate it is they're, like, upset with, um, they're upset with, like, this weird... Uh, Gratuitous uh, violence. Yeah, this weird gratuitous violence um, that happens because they're like really, um, they're really perturbed by portraying Jews on the same level as Nazis, which I think is like hypocritical given the history that we have just learned about how the Holocaust is used like as a narrative to justify Israel's occupation of Palestine. Also the fact that a lot of Jews are white and benefit from white supremacy. Um, which is a system predicated on violence. Um, and I actually don't, like, I'm not a big fan of the violence in the movie, but, uh, like, it's more of a question of the violence for what. And it's like, what does killing Hitler actually do here, right? Like, he starts the story after, like, Jews have already been put into camps and are, and the Nazis are committing these evil. It's not like, it's not like anything... It's not like we're killing baby Hitler. Yeah, we're not, we're not preventing... <laughs> the Holocaust, we're just like, we're still letting that happen, but we're just letting Jews right. get revenge. And I don't, right. I don't understand what, I, what that's for. Right, totally. And what I think is interesting about so many of Tarantino's works, and yes, if we're highlighting the, it's not that he's preventing the Holocaust from happening. It's that like, oh, we, we want enough bad things to have happened that it justifies this cinematically engaging, gratuitous slaughter of all of these people. And I know often the critique of Tarantino movies, right, is that like, oh, it's gratuitous violence that promotes violence. And Mike and I sort of agreed in advance, like, I don't, that's not something we're particularly interested in talking about. I think that that's gotten a lot more airtime than the things that we would like to focus on today. But this, like, I guess sort of appropriation on Tarantino's end of like, that somehow he gets brownie points for like, oh, it's so great that you want to make these movies about like preventing violence against marginalized groups of people. And that on the one hand, like, I mean, I, you know, he is, yes, like 25% Cherokee. So I find it kind of interesting that he's never made a movie about violence against indigenous people. I'm not implying that he should, but that like, he's sort of gone to bat for like, well, what if I stopped slavery and also the Holocaust? And I'm like, dude, you don't really have any skin in that game. Um, also, you can't go back and stop slavery or the Holocaust, but that it really frames Tarantino himself. And I don't mean, like, the representation of his work, but, like, how we sort of view him as a director of, like, wow, he's this avenger. You know, he's this writer of historic wrongs, and that that's somehow praiseworthy. Um, and that that just feels, like, so gross and, like, straight white man coming in to be like, yeah, but let's imagine that I saved everyone in history. And I think if we were to think specifically about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I can't even, there's really not enough time in the world for me to talk about all the reasons that I hated that movie um, in a way that I do not hate Inglorious Bastards. I recognize all of the flaws with it, but I'm like, I had a good time. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I was like, Jesus, why is this movie nine hours long? But this deeply self-serving Tarantino vision of like, what if I had saved Sharon Tate in the most hyper-sexualized kind of way? 
and that it is difficult for me to read that specifically, but I think with many of his films, it's difficult for me to read that as anything deeper than, like, your weird wet dreams of being able to play the good guy. Um, and the ways that we, right, and the way that we, like, celebrate and canonize that for both him as a director and what his work represents in a way that just seems so transparently self-serving. Well, and you, you literally made this point earlier, but basically the takeaway of this movie is that Nazis are bad, and pretty much, like, every conservative, aside from, like, the actual (laughs) neo-Nazis, like... Everyone who's not a current Nazi agrees Nazis are bad. Yeah, so, like, who, who are you... Who, who are you helping with that narrative, right? Like, there are plenty of people on the right who weaponize the Holocaust um, and the, like, Hitler totalitarian narrative all the time. So you're not really, you're not really adding any nuance to that conversation, right, by just saying right. Nazis are bad. Um, if anything, you go out of your way to go, like, to portray them more, uh, more complex, right? Like, he has Daniel Bruhl's character, um, Zoller, the... Um, the dude who's the star of Nation's Pride, the decorated, like, oh, guy. Yeah, yeah. He has yeah. him say at one point, like, most German soldiers are somebody's son. And it's just like... Right. It's You're like, trying. that is as far... That is as... That is as deep as he gets with it. Right. Right? And it's just like, okay, so we're just... We're supposed to empathize with that? Like, I guess? Right. Like, what is what does that do? And as far as, like, revenge goes, like... Like... I don't need revenge. What I need is for people to understand how like anti-Semitism is a systemic thing, right? Like the most harmful anti-Semitism to me isn't actually the hate crimes. Like, yes, those are really dangerous and we don't want those to happen. Right. But what causes those hate crimes to happen? Right. Of course. It is like the, the, the most harmful anti-Semitism that leads to those hate crimes are the conspiracy theories that, Jews are part of this cabal that control the media and the world's politics and are making everything bad for anybody to assert their dominance over the world, right? And the reality of that critique is actually that that critique is not that far off, right? Like, there is somebody doing that. It's just not Jewish people. (laughs) Right. It's not the Jews who have space lasers. Um, No, totally. And I think you can apply this... I I think the idea of revenge over reparations to me rings especially true when we talk about gender and sexism, right? I think the female revenge narrative is probably the most prominent across media and something that Tarantino himself has tackled with Kill Bill. And we can talk a little bit about the hypocrisy of that and both in his relation to Weinstein and the, you know, his abuse of Uma Thurman on set, which I'm sure people know about. We'll talk about in a sec, but um, the way that, People, and almost always men, make movies about, like, well, what's the worst thing that could happen to you as a woman? Well, I guess that's being raped. And that would be the good, that'd be a good plot for a movie. Because if a woman was raped, then she'd want to kill the person who raped her. And then when she's killed that guy, the problem will be solved. And you're like, again, not putting that pressure so much on an individual film, be that Kill Bill or, you know, I Spit on Your Grave or whatever the fuck, but that, like, it's that, when that becomes the dominant narrative, we see rape, and again, I realize, you know, we, and we could say this, of anti-Semitism or racism or whatever, we see that as a one-on-one problem that can be easily rectified by getting justice against the single person who perpetrated this, as opposed to the reality that it's not so much like, oh, this one guy raped this woman, but it's like, let's talk about why rape is an incredibly pervasive cultural problem. 
right? And again, I see I'm deviating toward issues of gender, but that I think we can say the same thing of these narratives around the Holocaust or slavery or whatever. Um, and I guess this is where I want to pivot a little bit to kind of Tarantino as a person, both, I guess, in a what he's like, to my understanding, and how <laughs> we view him culturally. Um, sure. Because, as I said at the top, it seemed inevitable we were going to do an episode about Tarantino, and I am not of the, I fucking hate Tarantino. I'm like, I, like... Django is a fun movie. This is a fun movie. Like, I, I, I can suspend my disbelief to enjoy the ride. I laughed out I loud really... several times during Inglourious <laughs> yeah, Bastards. Totally. Totally. Um, yeah, Christoph Waltz really brings the bacon. Totally deserved the Oscar. Um, but I really have a problem with how we, sort of what Tarantino has come to represent at a, like, as an quote artist and really kind of like the weird like aspirational wet dream that he is to so many young male filmmakers right I feel like that's kind of the obvious joke of every white college freshman is like trying to be Tarantino with like a fucking Pulp Fiction poster over their bed you know and that like you know he is I, I would say you know now a pretty rare breed of filmmaker he is both a writer and director Right? I don't know, we have a lot of brand name directors anymore at all, and those that we do, it's pretty rare for them to write their own stuff. I mean, I know we have, like, Paul Thomas, Thomas Anderson or Wes Anderson, you know, but a lot of the directors we love, like, you know, say, David Fincher. Like, David Fincher is not a writer. He's a very gifted, you know, I guess, artisan in crafting an environment, but he's able to pick stories that appeal to him from really wonderful writers. Whereas Tarantino is like, oh, these are things made in-house. He's notoriously a massive control freak, right? Really, his justification for things like the fact that he choked Uma Thurman for certain shots on Kill Bill, that he spit on her for certain shots, you know, that his justification, and you can read about this at length online, we can link something in the description, but of like, you know, was like, well, I didn't trust anybody else to spit on her in the right way. You know, we needed the spit to fly just so, and I needed to do that. And just like, I mean, I guess without even being like, why the fuck are you spitting on your actresses at all? But the idea that your justification is like, well, the shot was so important. I didn't trust anyone else to do this. I had to do this. And that I feel this feeds into so much of maybe we, quote, as an industry, but really, like, I think for young filmmakers or for people in film school, that it creates this idea of, like, right, but people like Tarantino, that's what it is to be a director. Because a director is uncompromising in, let's be real, his vision. A director is uncompromising, unrelenting, he is demanding, and whatever he wants is reasonable, because whatever you need to do to get, to get the shot is totally worth it, right? And that our caricature, and I think you could ask anyone whether or not you have any experience within the industry or being on set, but that it's like, right, a director is kind of a drama queen who is super demanding and super rude, but that's okay because their art is so good. And that, to me, is a pretty obvious explanation for how we then go to make room for people like Roman Polanski or Woody Allen, who are actually abusive rapists, and we say, well, but their art is so good. Or, well, maybe they did that, but wasn't that just part of their vision? You know, sure, Woody Allen made a movie, that movie being Manhattan, where he's dating a 19-year-old, but it's just a movie, right? You know, and it's just, it's a commentary on the thing, right? And I really just have no tolerance for this super young white male sort of idolization of men who, regardless of what you think about their art, are pretty shitty people. Um, who are hard to work with and who don't respect their crew 
And th that is what we idolize, both culturally and as an industry, as like, and that's what it is to be a great director. And I think that's crazy. And on top of that, having nothing to say, right? <laughs> right. Like yes. having nothing interesting to say. Like you're doing all of this for the aesthetic, for the, we, we fetishize, like we've had this conversation in the pre-work for this podcast and on the phone several times, but like fetishizing the craft, right? Totally. Of, of this stuff. Like, and like when we, when we talk about the importance of representation in film, like in front of and behind the camera, right? And when we talk about like Hollywood as an industry, um, one of the things I always get really frustrated in the conversation is like, okay, so how do you actually get that representation other than like just hiring somebody who is not uh, like a cishet white male? And a lot of people don't actually want to change the underlying socioeconomic conditions that would allow that to happen. Like totally like paying your interns. And when you don't sure. do that stuff, you get people like Tarantino, you get, you get people who are pretty affluent, who have nothing to say and who wind up being totally all in on the aesthetic and are abusive. Totally. totally. And it's not to say well, that other people can't do that. Right. But like, totally. But like that is, that is what Hollywood like has been for a long time. Totally. And, you know, let's be real. I don't think Tarantino was ever anybody's intern, paid or otherwise. But, um, yeah, I think that, and this is something, you know, you and I talk about all the time, but of, I guess, and, and maybe this becomes slightly more existential, but the idea that you have responsibility as a filmmaker, and maybe we think filmmaker is douchey, so I guess you can slice and dice that as director or as writer. I'm not in any way implying I think the writer and director are, on, are the only two people who make the ship go. Um, but I think the people that are starting with, like, I, I'm a writer, so I'm always biased at story level. So maybe we'll go with writer. But whoever's creating, you know, like, what is the actual vessel for what we're going to talk about? And I think that it really bothers me that we... And I think you could say we as film school, we as Hollywood, maybe we as consumers, but that we don't perceive you need to have, that there's like weight or responsibility to like, I want to make movies. And we say, okay, great. And that then what we focus on is, as Michael said, the craftsmanship. And by craftsmanship, we mean aesthetic. And by aesthetic, we mean the shot. And that that is somehow what we see as great art. And I'm not in any way shitting on the camera department or undermining the value of a really talented cinematographer. Or, or production design. Or, or, or production design. All of it is part of the shot, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but that we prioritize that. And that that is what we see as being the most important as opposed to like, but is this a story that needs to be told? What is it saying? Like is, and that, you know, for, I think you and I having made something essentially on our own dime, um, which I you know, is, is its own thing. Um, but you just know how much fucking work it takes to make anything. And I realize that if you have, if you have actual studio backing or more resources at your disposal, um, I don't know if it's ever easier. Um, but you've certainly greased the wheels a little bit. Um, but the, yeah, it takes a fucking village and it takes so much money and so much time and a lot of and, exploitation and a, well, right. I mean, and whether we're talking about unpaid interns or underpaid crew members or whatever. Or I even think, working you know, long hours on professional Hollywood productions, which happen all the time. Abs right. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, but that we don't prioritize like, right, but is this a person who has something to say? Like, is this a story that needs to be told? And I think that's really why we created this podcast, that it's not so much, I think it'll be rare for my critique of something to be like, I don't, like, I think this is so problematic. It, it can't exist. Um, I don't know that 
personally, I generally find that to be an, a very helpful opinion. But I think I watch a lot of things, not necessarily in Glorious Bastards, but I would say maybe a good other half of the Tarantino canon, where I'm just like, I don't know why this is here. Like, I'm like, I don't, it's not that I think, like, you're making the world a worse place for having made this, but I'm like, I don't really know that you're saying anything that people need to hear. Or, like, you have a nuanced opinion or idea or topic that you're trying to explore. And I feel like you're just, like, we love seeing pretty colors on the monitor. And that's great, but, like, I, I, yeah, I, I wish that we viewed filmmakers as having more, maybe ethical responsibility isn't the idea. Um... But I don't, like, fucking foresight into what you want to make. Does that make sense? That completely makes sense. And if you were to tie it back directly to Inglorious Bastards, right? Like, the a lot of people might argue, like, oh, well, this movie does have things to say. You know, like, Michael, Lily, it, it does come at, right. like, um, it does come at the United States of America. Like, it talks about how we enslave black people a little bit. Because there's that one card game scene where they talk about that. Right. Or because Brad Pitt is, like a descendant of the Apaches, they're touching upon, like, uh, like indigenous genocide a little bit. And it's like, they're not talking, they're not touching upon that stuff as systems, right? So when Willie's talking about, like, this movie has nothing to say, like, we don't talk about the fact that slavery was an economic decision. We don't talk about the fact that, like, killing indigenous Americans was for economic reasons, first and foremost. Right, it's right? not like three people were just like, man, I hate Native Americans, I'm gonna go murder them. Like, or like the reasons for this are more complicated. Yeah, and when I say for economic reasons, those economic reasons are racist, but that racism oh, is systemic, right? The notion that, like, black people are, like, criminals or that indigenous people are savages is part of a king concerted campaign to make you think that, to justify all the horrible shit that we're doing. And Absolutely. Tarantino is one of those people that comes in and is adding zero nuance to that conversation under the guise of entertainment by making this, like, by taking the Western narrative, like, AKA the Western super problematic as a narrative right off the bat, sure. right? Like, we could do a whole thing about that but we won't right now. But, like, taking the Western as a narrative and literally applying it to, like, an already revisionist story of a revisionist story of the Holocaust. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, totally. And, like, what for what? For what? Yeah. And right. that's what upsets me about this movie, I think. And, like, I think that's really important because, like, you know, this movie came out ten years ago. Uh, the or the, sure. This movie just had its ten-year retrospective in 2019, right? And we were at the height of the Trump administration. And and it's become vogue to say, punch a Nazi, and we're against this. And it's like, right. the, the, hip, the hypocrisy of that and the not acknowledging that, like, racism and white supremacy and all of that shit is so much more complicated than just the alt-right. It's all the people in between from the, from the, just the basic conservatives to centrists to liberals to even leftists. Like, how that comes across the entire gamut of the political spectrum. Like, sure. or is just sort of fundamentally sewn into seemingly benign values that we have culturally. And I think that if, you know, our joke at the beginning of this episode was like, oh, you know, this is lack of nuance, the movie, <laughs> um, that I, yeah, like, that I, I, I believe more and more, and maybe as we're having more overt conversations around uh, turns out fucking Nazis are back. Rude. Um, 
They were always but around here. Those, they were they were always here. I know, but now they're like really they're just fucking thriving. Very rude. Um, but like as we're having more of these conversations, where I really am of the mindset, and it, yes, we can recognize this is a movie that came out like eleven years ago, but nonetheless, like that I do actually think there's something inherently very damaging about overly simplistic narratives because it's not that we don't know that like the Holocaust happened or slavery happened, but now it is vital that if you were going to make, if you were going to tell stories about these kinds of hot button historic issues, you have to tell them in a nuanced way because otherwise not only is it like, Oh, you're not contributing to the conversation, but I would argue you're, you're legitimately detracting from the conversation. Um, not because we're here to like, you should make everybody feel really shitty and personally responsible, but that it's like, if you aren't giving people like, a twist in that perspective that will make them think it continues to like allow for this great sort of like passivity and per like lack of personal responsibility. Um, and, and like, and what was the thing? I'm sorry. You told me yesterday, but about like, it's not about, uh, it's not about, uh, it's not about revenge. It's about accountability or it's not about, um, yeah, basically, basically like, uh, like how do you hold people responsible in a meaningful way? Yeah, like, I, I consider myself to be an abolitionist, uh, and, like, the idea behind abolition is we're trying to, we're trying to say that the society that lets this kind of stuff happen should not exist. And so, what does that mean? Like, it means killing Nazis doesn't do anything for the harm that's already been done. It doesn't make, it doesn't make Jews whole, right? Putting sure. them in jail also doesn't make them whole, right? What it means is, like, how are we... How are we examining, like, what they did and how society allowed this whole thing to happen and saying we're not going to let that happen anymore? That is, to totally. me, that is, that is true justice. And, like, I think that's, that's super important, right? Because, like, in the final moments of the film, right, like, Colonel Hans Landa gets to make a deal and he gets, um, he gets, like, let, uh, he gets immunity and let into the, con let into the United States um, as if that is, like, some revisionist history, like, that actually happened, right? Like, totally. you, the United States of America, under Operation Paperclip, let Nazis into the United States, key leaders of the Nazi party, into the United States to do work for them, for, to advance, like, military and scientific initiatives against the Soviets. Right. Like, like, when we talk about accountability, where's the accountability for that? Totally. You know? Like... I, I right, have, maybe that would have been an interesting film, like to talk about how does one hold former SS officers accountable? And I guess I, I feel like we're starting to wrap up, but I, I, it is fascinating, I guess, how prevalent this narrative is because you think about something like, uh, uh, oh fuck, is it the hunt on Amazon about the, mm. uh, hunters, hunters on Amazon, um, about, uh, you know, tracking down former Nazis in, 1960s mm -hmm. America and same very brutal over the top uh, revenge narrative. Um, and yeah, I guess just noting, noting how prevalent that is. And I guess my final sort of two cents on this is like, I, as not to be like as someone who's a writer, but as someone who is very invested in this kind of nuanced exploration of hard questions and complex social issues. Um, 
and not that I'm, I am, I am but a very green writer, so I'm not like, no, oh, my writing prowess, but I'm like, you know, as someone who, who thinks about the stuff a lot and is always trying to reframe projects in this way, like, I, I recognize how fucking difficult that is. I'm like, well, all you need to do is tell a really nuanced story. And I'm like, that is so, so hard because once you're presenting people, by which we mean a reader or an audience, um, you know, with a perspective that may be totally foreign to them, or we're talking about a facet of history that has never been widely discussed. You know, there's a lot of heavy lifting in exposition and background. You know, how do you get your audience onto a page where they understand what's going on? And then, you know, if you're challenging widely held beliefs or widely held framing of historic events, like th there's a lot of lifting that goes there. And then you need to make it very personal, right? You need to have, um, you know, characters that are exemplifying the struggle in a way that feels natural. And like, I don't, I'm not in any way minimizing how hard that is. And I see, um, I think at least for me as a viewer, it is very rare to see films that capture, um, I guess, kind of isms. So sexism, racism, anti-Semitism, what have you, in a way that feels legit, <laughs> for lack of anything resembling a better word. Um, and I really commend those who do. And I think that um, for me, this is certainly wandering away from Holocaust cinema, but I... I think that's where sometimes maybe the best answer is like very small stories, right? That you're able to take like, this is, this is one person's experience and really flesh that out. And I think this becomes hard when you're like, oh, we're talking about a system. And so I'm going to try and have this be about taking down the whole system because that kind of implies that you can take down the system. Um, like it's a group of accountants that you just need to like machine gun out and that that is uh, just, yeah, tragically not how systemic oppression works. So um, yeah. Yeah. Real, real bummer there. But. Like, people get replaced all the time, but the system stays. And, uh, like, I think, I think there is an interesting, longer conversation to be had around, like, the notion of film as, like, a narrative about individuals and mm, why yeah. we gravitate towards that so much and focus on that when, like, clearly, like, we are facing, like, hard systemic problems, right? Sure. Um... And there's, there's not an easy answer to that, and there's probably not a right answer to that. But yeah. I just, like, and I want to say, like, I'm, uh, again, like, uh, the views that I hold are not the views most American Jews hold on this topic. But then the question is, is, like, what system is being upheld when we tell this story and why? Sure. And, like, you know, to, to, like, kind of wrap it up, like, the U.S. has 35,000 museums. There's only one about slavery. We have over what? 300. Yeah. We have over 300 uh, museums uh, dedicated to the Holocaust. We have hardly any dedicated to indigenous people that actually talks about like the fact that we, we literally caused genocide on them, right? Like the right. word Holocaust has become associated with the destruction of Jews by Nazi Germany. Like, the extermination of 6 million Jews by Nazi Germany when there were 11 million people that died and Holocaust is just another word for genocide, but, but it is the sure. capital H Holocaust. And sure. so these, and, and again, like why did the U S enter, why did the U S enter world war two and what did we do and how are we still racist today? And has the United States cared about oppression? Uh, right. And what ways does focusing on the Nazi oppression of Jews undermine that right totally yeah yeah shit man we really we lured you guys in with when harry met sally and then we were like gonna double down for for episode two um michael do you have any closing thoughts about this film anything you'd like uh i guess 
our listeners to bear in mind when watching it? Or, uh, yeah, any any really hot takes you want to save for these last two minutes? Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily believe in canceling this movie, but, like, I really wish this wasn't, like, held in such high esteem, to be honest. Like, uh, this movie really irks me, uh, but I can't say that, like, Jews don't also push this this narrative and aren't are proud of this movie so even though like sure they had no involvement in it so i guess like i would just encourage folks who are who are in disagreement to uh read norman finkelstein's the holocaust industry and read more about him and like try and check uh try and check your privilege at the door um and i think like more people should do that in general. So totally. that's where I'll end my thoughts. Totally. All right, cool. Well, that sounds good. Um, yeah, we hope, I think as ever, like I, I really hope that for the 40 people who listen to this podcast, that maybe you do want to go rewatch this movie and you can certainly form your own opinions. We're not here to tell you what to think. Um, but yeah, maybe with a, with a more critical eye and uh, yeah, we're very excited. We'll be back in two weeks with a movie we haven't chosen yet. So it'll be, it'll be a surprise to everyone, including me. And uh, yeah, thank you everyone so much for being here. And uh, we'll, be back, we'll be back in a couple weeks with more Hot Takes. Blockbusted is an independently produced podcast created by Lily Yasuda and Michael Wolf. Our theme song is Retro Future Clean by Kevin McLeod. You can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Music, or anywhere else you choose to get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, and if it is on Apple Music, take the time to leave a positive review so other listeners can find us. If you have thoughts, comments, or future episode suggestions, feel free to reach out at blockbustedpod at gmail.com. That's blockbustedpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.